and welcome to the F1 Strategy Report for Apex Race Manager, the mobile management simulator. On this week's edition, the Spanish Grand Prix, the championship tightens up at the front, but Fernando Alonso fails to beat Pastor Maldonado's record of most unusual win. That's all to come in this edition of the Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and joining me this week is Craig Scarborough from scarbstech.com. How are you doing? Uh, very good. A little bit bleary-eyed after a, a, a long and sunny weekend in Spain, but uh, yeah, very good, thank you. It's an interesting round, the Spanish Grand Prix, not only because we do start the European season, we sort of get into the stride of things, although I guess the Russians would be unhappy if we're saying this is the start of the European season, <laughs> but that's a different debate. <laughs> um we get a lot of upgrades in Spain. It's sort of the upgrade round of the season. And that was really interesting because we didn't know whether, I mean, for one, particularly on top of my list, was whether Ferrari would be able to keep up with Mercedes upgrades. And visually, you thought maybe they wouldn't, considering how different the Mercedes car looked. But in the end of the day, qualifying less than uh, less than a tenth, it was half a tenth and in the race, only a couple of seconds. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's predictions of um, what was going to happen in terms of the, the level and the effectiveness of people's upgrades were massively wrong. We were all looking at the wrong places at the wrong times. And the the net result seems to be that, yeah, you're absolutely right. Ferrari, if anything, have closed uh, to Mercedes. I think arguably qualifying pace, that's as close as they've ever been. Uh, well, we know that Mercedes can turn the power unit up and they were running a new power unit, at least on Hamilton's car during qualifying. And yeah, in the race as well, equally. I mean, I think you could argue the Ferrari was the slightly faster car, but they really just got the strategy wrong. So yeah, it's a race that really has kind of turned the our perceptions of yeah their relative performance and how good they are with their upgrades completely on its head. Um, yeah, completely against the uh, the uh, what we were expecting. And it was interesting as well because Sebastian Vettel had a, a late power unit change, and everyone thought it was just another new specification. My understanding now is that actually it was the old internal combustion unit as well. So as much as this is not a power circuit, and we'll talk about Fernando Alonso's qualifying heroics as evidence of that in a minute. But it really does go to show that even though the upgrades on the outside of the Ferrari weren't particularly obvious, they were there. And I'd like to ask you obviously you're a, you're a technical expert in this sport what's been the key areas of development so far in 2017 that have had the impact on performance uh, it, it's varied massively between the teams but basically everyone seems to have come out with what they feel is about the right concept and no one's really changing the fundamentals of their car design as they develop them no one's coming in with very different wings or very different barge board setups uh, so what they're doing is they're refining the, the concepts that they've decided to kick the season off with. And as we saw last year, and uh, it's been evident across the grid this year, is that you pretty much you keep the general shape of bodywork that you had on the aero side, but you just cut more slots and grind more holes into it. And that seems for somehow it seems to make make them work work better. <laughs> uh, I think Mercedes are you know, still the kings of that, but Ferrari's updates this weekend really were very very minor i mean the um the probably the biggest performance seemed to come from just two slots cut into the white barge boards <laughs> next to the cockpit um yeah it's baffling but uh, yeah teams are, are are progressing very rapidly with their cars this year obviously with the new regulations understanding things much much more and uh, it is just really the detailed complexity um and i think it won't be probably until 
we get to the the final flyaway races that we potentially might even see teams change their initial concepts and either find something new or more likely copy in other teams. So we've probably got quite an interesting summer of people just, you know, kind of just working really hard on what they've got. Uh, as they get more speed into these cars lots of holes being drilled in cars i know what i'm going to do to my car after we finish recording this podcast <laughs> always want a bit more performance in the humble corolla so yeah just yeah just grind some slots in your fenders you'll find that you'll go from corners so much quicker um yeah but that it, it's it's strange but um you know the regulations really have kind of freed the teams up a lot this year and uh they're almost kind of sport for choice of where they can start to tackle in adding more performance. But certainly it seems that the teams are happy to run any downforce that they get their hands on, whether it brings more drag or not. So, um, you know, when we come to some of these really quite sort of fast cornered mid European season uh, circuits, I think we may see the cars really start to come alive in comparison to the, uh, the early races. One thing that's been key thus far, and it certainly played a part in the Spanish Grand Prix, we'll get to, is mastering the Pirelli tyres. And this is probably not where the ultimate Pirelli tyre is going to be in this generation of rules, given they've gone conservative because no one really knew how fast these cars would actually be. But what teams for you seem to be mastering these tyres this year and how much of an advantage is that bringing them? Granted, it seems to have waxed and waned a little bit between different teams so far. Yeah, I mean, it really just depends on on the day and the conditions. Uh, I mean, I think you would have to say that Ferrari have probably been the most consistent up the front with their tyre usage, whichever tyres they tend to be on whichever session, whether it's a qualifying session or a race, uh, just seem to be able to get the best out of the tyres. Um, so they really have been the winners there. They've got a very consistent car across you know, every type of condition. Um, as you go back down the grid again, you know, there's teams that consistently do very well and Force India again are a team that are you know, punching way above their weight in what they're able to do um, with the tyres in the race. They really seem to have a complete handle on how to get the Pirellis to work. Um, but then you look at Mercedes that are a lot more inconsistent. Um, Red Bull, whose car doesn't seem to be able to uh, get the Pirellis into the you know, sort of the temperature and the downforce areas that, that the tyres like to be and are really suffering as a result. Uh, although the <laughs> Red Bull problems are far wider than the tyre <laughs> usage. Um, but it, uh, I think now, you know, they're, they're sort of certainly some of the losers uh, amongst this. And uh, you have to say sort of when you look back towards the, the other end of the grid, Haas seem to have got a handle on the tyres very well, as do Sauber, albeit with some, as we saw at the weekend, uh, quite unusual strategies. But um, I think these Pirellis, because they are so durable and can run so long uh, without giving up too much performance that I think some of these uh, sort of midfield teams are now starting to realise you can run a quite unusual strategy uh, and beat a lot of people in the process. Um, But, you know, I think we're finding now is that, you know, the other teams, you know, particularly Mercedes, will now start to understand them a bit more. Um, Red Bull have always been a team that are very slow to understand tyres, so I don't think it will be <laughs> until we get a lot more upgrades on that car, a lot more races under our belt that Red Bull really kind of catch up. But I think, you know, as we saw at the weekend, Mercedes certainly were doing a, a pretty stellar job with the tyres. Now, plenty of learning still to do, as you say, but let's get into the weekend proper. And qualifying is, of course, where the weekend starts. And for a lot of Spanish fans, it's where the weekend really did start because <laughs> Fernando Alonso qualified seventh somehow. Yes, it's still that Honda engine in the back although who knows maybe it's the honda engine he'll be racing at indycar in two weeks time but how much does that show unless there's a big improvement of the honda engine that we don't know about how much emphasis is on the chassis at a circuit like barcelona 
I mean, Barcelona is is much more a chassis circuit. I mean, it, that by no means uh, the engine is uh, you know, the least important of the, uh, the facets because you've got a long straight, you've got a lot of um, inclines and hills on the circuit. So power is important, but it's very much more about the chassis. And which kind of raises a conundrum because the, that McLaren in Alonso's hands was absolutely <laughs> flying um, and was flying... Um, I mean, it was way above um, Van Dorn's car on straight line speed uh, in mm-hmm. and also not just on the speed track, but in the uh, maximum speed sections of every sector. It was at least kind of midfield, which is baffling. And equally, Alonso's lap times were very strong in that middle sector, which is all about the corners. So, I mean, you would have to say that Alonso had a different, a completely different car <laughs> to what Van Dorn was running because he had cornering performance and power. And, you know, to be fair to um, Honda, the McLaren chassis isn't that great. Um, and I think certainly I, all we can say is that whatever setup that Alonso was running, it, that engine was absolutely at the maximum. He got the chassis the tyres in the sweet spot, and there was just that a, a touch of that Alonso factor, <laughs> uh, just really pushing that car absolutely um, as fast as it was. M- maybe playing tennis on a Friday <laughs> is the the answer to uh, get, getting your car to work on on, on a Saturday. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it, it it goes completely against the run of form um, that that qualifying performance, and I think his race performance kind of brought us all back down to. Uh, where we were on expectations because he really was very distant and though he had a bit of fun along the way as his tyres were out of phase with people around him and he could do a bit of overtaking but you know the, the McLaren did not show any kind of performance in the race so um, maybe he just was going out having some fun. Mm. I mean, every so often uh, the Spanish Grand Prix does have to deliver some unusual results. We've had Maldonado. Eventually, <laughs> something like this was going to happen, wasn't yeah. it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's normally a very, very predictable race um, or a weekend uh, because the amount of testing they do mm-hmm. there and it's it's um, very much a chassis circuit. So there's, there's not always a lot you can do. So, yeah, it's it was good that we had... Some unusual bits and pieces um, through the race uh, and through the weekend. Yeah. Now, we say that this is normally a pretty straightforward Grand Prix, and that is because, as we've said, it's sort of a bit of a chassis circuit. It's hard to to follow here, not many natural overtaking places. And so when Sebastian Vettel beat Lewis Hamilton off the line because it was Hamilton who scored pole, it, you'd be forgiven for thinking, well, that's that's sort of done now, isn't it? And for a little bit, it kind of did look like that because Hamilton just really couldn't keep up with Sebastian Vettel in that first phase of the race and but then what came into play here was the I guess the knife edge decision as to whether it was a two or three stop race and Mm. it looked like Mercedes sort of dared Ferrari to try and do a three stop here because Vettel stopped very early on lap 14. Yeah it's um I'm I think everyone was kind of thinking that it was a a Mercedes bluff I don't think Ferrari with the, the strategy generally that they've run this year were were thinking that I think they were probably on for a three stop thinking that they were um in clean clean air it's the fastest way to run the track um and i think you know mercedes were playing about i mean they played about with radio strategy and with coming out into the pits quite a bit of the weekend which isn't something that <laughs> is generally accepted in formula one but um, mm. i think they did kind of maybe get away with it a little bit this weekend um and I think, you know, clearly, you know, Vettel was quicker um, in the Ferrari than Hamilton in the Mercedes. And this is pro- arguably the first time this season that we've actually seen Ferrari just outwardly quicker um, than mm-hmm. Mercedes in race conditions. Often it's been the start and then situations that have brought, you know, whoever's won the race into 
uh, in, into the, the lead um, rather than um, particularly for the Ferraris in terms of outright pace. But yeah, I think Hamilton would kind of lucked in and I think uh, Ferrari dropped the ball in, in two places this weekend. I mean, you know, Vettel did the best job. I think the strategy was looking good. But I think coming out after that stop uh, so close to Bottas um, and again, obviously Mercedes were able to play with the strategy bit there. It was quite obvious. Um and then um, deciding when to come in uh, during the safety car. I think that was probably, of all things, the pivotal moment. Because I think if, if Vettel had pitted and come out in front of Hamilton, I think the race would have been won at that point. And it's always quite clear, once you get a kind of a a safety car in that uh, pit window, it's always best to go for the pit stop. Um, it was late enough in the race. Vettel especially had the hards to run. And it was quite clear that the hards were able to, at least in Hamilton's hands, uh, put you know some quick lap times in. So, yeah, I think Ferrari really dropped the ball on Saturday. And again, probably for the first time this year, they've not really got the strategy quite right when really it's normally been Mercedes that have been a bit more conservative with their race strategies. So, it's, as I say, it's one of those races that's turned you know our perceptions of where each team is completely on its head. And as we go you know, into the, the middle part of the season now, um, I was perhaps expecting Mercedes to take a clear step ahead, but yeah, now I'm not so sure. <laughs> it is interesting you say that because we saw, I think in particular in China and Bahrain, although in China it didn't pay, pay off, but that was partly because of the safety mm. car. But Ferrari this season's really been grabbing the bull by the horns in a strategy sense. Yeah. They've been bold and confident and, and making decisions that if they didn't pay off, they probably should have paid off were it not for circumstances. Mm. But in this situation somehow panicked and I can't help but wonder if it at least had a little bit to do and I'd love your opinion on Sebastian uh, Lewis Hamilton's heavy breathing in the cockpit yeah. was it just to put his rivals off here or was he actually tired I, 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 have, I don't know I mean I, I, I find Hamilton's radio conversations really kind of belie where he's thinking <laughs> yeah. um, and as much as he jumps out of the cockpit and comes out with these lovely kind of memes on uh, Instagram and Twitter <laughs> and what have you I think what what he how he says things during a race kind of gives things away, and you know normally you hear him a bit panicky sometimes or uh, a little bit confident. This time, I mean, it was quite clear he was pushing pushing really hard in that first stint, and um, you know I think this is you know it's the story of the year really. It's gonna be it's clearly it's gonna be a Vettel Hamilton year, Ferrari Mercedes. And uh, and I think they're going to be having you know, sort of ding dongs throughout the year. And I think certainly as as uh, Vettel came out of that um, uh, final pit stop, we saw the cars. I mean, his, the Pirelli was wiped off of the uh, sidewall of the rear tyre because they'd made contact out in that first turn. I think it, it makes it shape up to be an absolutely fascinating year. And you know, I don't know if there'll be any point where we really can separate, you know, which is the quicker car, which is the mm-hmm. quicker driver, because. It is every race we've had this year, situations have led to who's won the race because they are just so equal on performance. And it could just be, you know, that strategy call, the the good start, they're not getting stuck behind someone in traffic or, uh, you know, um, being behind with um, with DRS. It's I think every race could come down to something like this and it makes for a fascinating season. It really does. And we saw some of those fine margins play out in this race. And one of the ones I thought was really interesting, and we touched on it briefly, was Sebastian Vettel's first pit stop. Slightly panicky, came out behind Daniel Ricciardo, who he had relatively minimal difficulty passing. He did lose a little bit of time in the last sector, which is, of course, where it's the most difficult to pass. But what was really interesting was that, of course, Mercedes seeing that Bottas was ahead of him on the road left Bottas out probably longer than we mm. should say would have been helpful for Bottas doesn't matter his engine failed anyway so no harm done I guess in that sense but 
it's interesting how this is going to play out. Now, Ferrari didn't have Vettel's rear gunner in the, in the shape of Raikkonen in this round because he crashed out on the first lap. But considering the points difference now, given both Raikkonen and Bottas failed to finish this race, essentially losing 25 points to their teammates, do you see that this is going to be a bit more of their roles now, having Bottas and Raikkonen essentially try and annoy the other driver of the opposite team and play strategy like that? No, I, it's I, for me, I think it's way too early in the season. I think... Uh, Bottas in particular has got a lot to bring to the championship this year. Um, I, I think Kim is having a, a certainly another more competitive year, maybe clearly not at the same level as um, uh, Sebastian, particularly in the races, it seems. Um, but um, I think it's one of these things, is, you know, they'll go out and do the best they can for the individual drivers. And if there's a situation where they can, you know, just tweak things like they did with Bottas there um, to, to keep him out um, and to... Uh, you know, pull back some time, then they'll do so. But I don't think it's that early enough in the season that they would, you know, go out with that intention. Um, and um, equally, when you've got two drivers fighting out at the front like they were uh, this weekend, it could potentially could have been a weekend where if Raikkonen and Bottas had been able to stay out on track, um, that they could have gone for a very different strategy and try and actually upset them, you know, the leaders, as it were. So um, I think there's still all to play for, and I think there's lots to be done with strategy this year, particularly as teams start to get a bit more control over which tyres they're running. Well, it is interesting there because the idea of a dramatically different strategy is something that lacked a, a little bit in this race, and that's partly because of that virtual safety car. Mm. Most of the field did the expected first two stints on soft and then a, a last stint on the medium, but that became really quite a long last stint, almost half the race, mm. because that's roughly when the virtual safety car came out. And that's kind of the crux of what lost Sebastian Vettel this race, because he wanted to do essentially what Hamilton did and run the medium for only maybe 10 or 15 laps, mm. end up running it for almost 30 laps, or almost exactly 30 laps indeed. Uh, had we seen, do you think, uh, Raikkonen and Bottas being able to maximise that soft tyre? I mean, potentially that could have been the fastest strategy here. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, I think often going for a split strategy with the, with the team, particularly when you've got, you know, clearly two drivers and then another two drivers um, sort of fighting each other, it makes sense to chop things about. And even we've seen some previous races, I think... Um, at Russia, when Hamilton, everyone was sort of backing up a little bit. Hamilton could have gone for an aggressive strategy there, but chose not to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think maybe that, that the teams now need to start thinking about what they can do with these other cars to um, get them, you know, within those final few seconds as we um, f- sort of finish up the race. Because that's every race we've had someone chasing someone else down in those in those last few laps. And then obviously then Massa getting in the way uh, <laughs> in a kind of an, uh, an Andre de Cesaris or any Arnoux style um, uh, getting his name out there. Um, but yeah, there is, there's a lot to be played for a strategy on both cars. And I think just simply following everyone really doesn't pay off, not in a championship that we can have this year. Now we talk about that last stint of Sebastian Vettel's being unfortunately long on the mediums, let's say. Uh, he did manage to keep Hamilton behind him. Some lapped traffic helped him keep that position for the next, let's say, five or six laps. But it seemed inevitable that Hamilton would pass him, and indeed he did. But part of this, because as we said, the, the performance of the soft and the medium tyres here 
at least for Mercedes and Ferrari, was not as far apart as expected. In fact, they finished only three and a half seconds uh, apart, did Hamilton mm. and Vettel. But the key difference here could potentially have been a decision of the FIA to extend the DRS zone 100 metres this race. Mm. It did look very easy, the way Hamilton passed Vettel, didn't it? It was, and it's interesting that Vettel had set his car up. You could, again, you could check the uh, the speed traps and the top speed uh, things. He, he was the fastest car in a straight line anywhere on the track all weekend. So he was clearly, you know, hoping that he would have some performance on the straight during the race uh, to defend or attack. Um, but, you know, when Hamilton had the, the, the slightly faster tyre uh, and DRS and the extra 100 metres, um, there was just no way. Uh, and obviously we know that Mercedes can sort of turn the engine up quite high. And we, you heard the radio during the race that they had the sort of magic paddle that <laughs> uh, kind of turns everything up to 11 um, uh, to use. At, yeah, and it was, you know, it would be inevitable that Hamilton was going to get past. The question was, is how long would those tyres hang on for? Because mm-hmm. he, you know, he was going on for a very long stint on the mediums. Um, and then once he'd got past, he didn't really clear away. Um, and... Um, you know, Vettel was putting in, you know, sort of equal lap times you know, within a few tenths um, behind him uh, on what should have been a tyre that was, you know, several tenths a lap slower. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's very strange. Um, and, you know, go complete, again, goes completely against our understanding of what tyres should be like. Um, and uh, equally, Hamilton ran a, a huge long stint, you know, the fastest lap within the last couple of laps um, on a very used set of um, softs, which, you know, shouldn't be the case for racing car tyres. You know, mm-hmm. you shouldn't be able to run one of the uh, uh, softest uh, options uh, available to you over a weekend for, for <laughs> over half the race. It was a bit of a race like that because every driver had a little bit of a story. They all did something a little mm. bit interesting or a little bit special and they all had something noteworthy. And we'll get to a couple of others in a moment, but one man who was just painfully anonymous this weekend was Daniel Ricciardo. After his teammate crashed, had no one to race, car's not fast enough to compete with Ferrari, too fast to compete with Force India. What's what's going to happen to Red Bull Racing this season? Is this just going to be the story of the year, driving alongside nobody, always finishing behind the front two? Um, it pains me to say so, because I, I really was expecting Red Bull to have a fantastic season this year, but I really think that is the case. Um, you know, the, the car has been crippled by uh, regulation changes or clar- technical reg- uh, clarifications over the winter about the suspension. And I think Red Bull have finally admitted about this now. Um, it's not the whole story. We know the Renault power unit hasn't made as big a step as um, we perhaps expected over the winter. Um, and that's showing in the race. Uh, it's showing in their sister team, Toro Rosso, who seem to be languishing way too far down the uh, the order for, for the, the, the car and the drivers that they've got. So, yeah, I think Red Bull really are just for a very long year. The, the upgraded power unit um, isn't coming until, I think, Canada or maybe later. And I don't, again, we don't see Renault aggressively developing the engine during the season. They tend to do it off-season. And when, you know, the step off-season this year wasn't big enough, that's left them in a, a, a real situation. And that Red Bull chassis just isn't doing the job. It hasn't got enough downforce. Uh, it's... Um, obviously not quick enough in the straight line and um, it's not working its tyres and then you end up with two very good drivers um, being quite anonymous really, uh, as you say, during the race. I mean, it was a second a lap uh, at Barcelona for Daniel Ricciardo, which is which is a ridiculous amount of time. But then, you know, Force India then a second a half a lap slower um, than, than the uh, leaders. So it does leave them in a bit of no man's land and I can't see that closing up significantly um, over the rest of the year because I just don't think 
um, both Red Bull and Renault can develop um, quickly enough to actually close that one second gap to Ferrari and Mercedes, who are clearly going to be developing like mad this year because both of them know that the championship's at stake. So they'll be pushing as hard as they can. And I think it just may be a, a year that Red Bull write off and go, OK, well, maybe we'll get a good result in at somewhere like Singapore and Hungary. But the rest of it, you know, let's focus, start to focus on next year and uh, having a big push with the chassis and a big push with the power unit. It's interesting. And this is, uh, I suppose, a little bit of an aside, but we have Mercedes and Ferrari uh, both losing touch. Or, OK, let's be honest, pushing out their technical directors at the end of last year or even the middle of last year in Ferrari's mm. case. And those have big, strong technical teams, whereas Red Bull Racing, as much as Adrian Newey has been stepping back over the last couple of years, still very much a figurehead of that team. And yet... Uh, the opposite effect, I guess, of what we would have thought is true. I mean, everyone hyped up the Adrian Newey car to beat them all this year, and it just hasn't happened. Is that still the way you can design a Formula One team now to rely on uh, a single person to try and get you out of trouble, or is this something that's perhaps a little bit more systemic now for Red Bull Racing? I mean, I think it is. A, it, you know, Red Bull are still very much leaning back on Adrian for sort of concept work and for um, remedial work during the year, uh, when clearly that wasn't what he wanted to be doing. Um, and Red Bull, having you know ended their sort of big successful period a few years ago, needed to kind of rebuild the team a little bit. And yet you can't, you you can carry on with uh, a, a one distinct design lead like Adrian Newey, but you have to accept that Adrian, you know, his uh, commitment to F1 is waning. You know, he's getting older. He wants to be doing other things. His enthusiasm for this all uh, will go, and one day he will want to retire. But the problem you then have is you have a complete design office structure built around one person and you will never find another person like adrian newey nowadays to slip back into his role mm -hmm. you know they won't um promote one of the other people to be like the de facto design leader or they can't poach someone from another team because that sort of person doesn't exist anymore he's a, you know he's a uh, it sounds horrible to say he's a bit of a dinosaur in that <laughs> respect but uh, you know a very six a very mm -hmm. successful yeah. one we have to add. yes <laughs> so yeah so you know I think the plan, I always thought the plan was in the sort of the post uh, sort of Vettel 2013 era that Red Bull would restructure much more to become a more conventional team to be breast reliant on uh, Newey. And I don't see that that has happened to the degree that I would have expected it to. Um, you know, we're still seeing them leaning on him and the, uh, the, the, the three other, three, four, five uh, other sort of technical heads uh, aren't as evident. Um, and, you know, that means that Red Bull... When Adrian, you know, does decide to um, stop being directly involved in the F1 project, the Rebel will then have to completely reorganise their team. And as we know, that takes time. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it, it means that they're wasting time now um, uh, with a slow car when they could be, you know, working on their, the structure of, the, of their organisation. Think of all the time they could save if they didn't threaten to quit every other year when it wasn't going their way. <laughs> it's so much more energy they could be committing to other things well it's it's funny isn't it it's uh, you know red bull have moaned and moaned about it being a tire formula then an engine formula <laughs> and now we finally get an aero formula and mm. red bull have failed to uh, monopolize on that i mean it's you know that the red bull looks simple and that's because it is because they can't you know they don't have the control of the car with the suspension um to to get the aero to work um with anything more complicated and that's gonna take a long time to fix so yeah red bull um you know maybe we'll hear christian horner towards the back end of the year then complaining that maybe we just need it to be a mechanical grip formula <laughs> or um 
a matte paint formula, something yeah. that you know clearly is a Red Bull, a Red Bull strong point rather than uh, Aero, which bizarrely it isn't at the moment. A yacht formula. Then Adrian Newey can come back. He's got a bit of a penchant yeah, for sails. That's, you know, get rid of the get rid of the power mm. units and just uh, wind power. <laughs> yeah. I think that's that's a potential glimpse into the future. We've got new commercial owners. Yeah. Anything's possible for Formula One. Uh, if we look down the order a little bit, Sergio Perez, Esteban Ocon scored great points for Force India. Likewise, Nico Hulkenberg for Renault. They all benefited, though, not to detract from their performances, but from the fact that Raikkonen, Bottas, uh, and Massa, and Max Verstappen all finished outside the top 10, most of them because they crashed or retired mm. in Massa because he suffered a puncture, unfortunately, and, and fell down the order at the very beginning of the race, on lap mm. one, in fact. But the man in the top 10 who is well worth talking about is Pascal Verlein. Didn't compete at the start of the season because, well, he had some injury concerns. Mm. In this, one of the most toughest of races, according to Lewis Hamilton, absolutely blitzed it. A one-stop race, soft, then medium. Finished eighth, and that's only because he, he picked up a penalty along the way. He should have finished seventh ahead of both Todd mm. Rosso's. It's a little bit going on for that, Sauber, after all, isn't there? Yeah, again, it's, um, you know, I never really saw Verline performing um, in the uh, sort of the... Uh, last season and certainly that we know the Sauber is you know somewhat of a dated car it hasn't had the development money put on it that it, the team would like it has a year old Ferrari engine mm. uh, but you know tires can overcome everything you know tires are probably the most influential factor on a Formula One car if you could add five percent of anything whether it be aero power or um uh, tires you'd choose it on tires because tires will just give you that that that, that lap time advantage and they just worked the strategy out perfectly. Um, and they thought, well, a tricky race. Uh, let's just go for it. We'll just push him out there. And, um, you know, Verline really kind of brought that result home, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it, it's almost a, a Perez-like performance, wasn't it? You know, <laughs> just managing the tyres, you know, just keep plucking away. And I think after, you know, some fairly bad press for uh, Verline at the back end of last year over the winter and... Um, Coming back, he's really has just kind of kind of smashed it out of the park mm-hmm. um, on sat on Sunday, didn't he? And uh, all credit to him and to the Sauber team because um, none of us saw that coming. And uh, you know, shame on all of the other midfield teams for for <laughs> being uh, take overtaken by um, you know a, 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 a potentially poorer strategy and a far mm-hmm. poorer car on a day when you know, as you say, with so many people. Um, being out in the first few laps, it was one of those, always going to be one of those days where there were points available for the uh, the lucky few. Mm. And just to sort of emphasize that point, now Pascal Verline finished between Carlos Sainz ahead and Daniel Kvyat behind, all very close to one another, mm. within uh, about 10 or 15 seconds altogether, and that includes his five-second penalty. But Daniel Kvyat and Carlos Sainz both did two stops as opposed to the one stop. Kvyat did almost the same strategy. He started last, so he stopped on lap one to get rid of the mm. mediums and run the whole race on softs because everyone wanted to run mostly mm. softs. But if you take the 20 seconds off his lap time, he could have finished ahead of Pascal Verline or 20 seconds or thereabouts for a pit stop. Likewise, Carlos Sainz. So it just goes to show that a little bit of ambition, like we were saying, a little bit of, a, of an aggressive strategy, it really can pay off on a day where clearly Sauber saw that these tyres were very, very, very durable. Yes, exactly. I mean, we used to see teams like Manor. Uh, you know, it's easy to make gambles when you're at the back of the grid, <laughs> yeah. it's fair to say. Um, but, you know, Kivat had lots of, I seem to remember looking at the tyre list, lots of softs available. And, um, you know, he kind of, the strategy he ran made some sense in terms of the tyres that he had to him. But, uh, 
yeah, I think that early that early stop probably was maybe just pu- pushing it a bit bit too far. I know we did have obviously the virtual safety car uh, come out, but um, yeah, um, I, I think we we some of these teams, particularly someone like Toro Rosso, who historically used to do lots of very clever strategies, are now just kind of doing the obvious mm-hmm. uh, and running and uh, not getting the best out of it. Indeed, and we saw them all, ex- or Carlos Sainz in particular, execute a relatively similar strategy. Mm. I want to make a final note, though, on Haas here, uh, because they've been thereabouts uh, in their second season, which is pretty good considering it is the first year they've had to design a car whilst also running a car mm-hmm. last year. But they have had these perennial brake problems, and they've gone back and forth between Carboid Industries and Brembo uh, in the last couple of races, in the last race, and they still haven't been able to settle because they can't figure out exactly how they're working. How much is that having an effect on that team, do you think, when they feel like they should be essentially running different parts, but they can't, but they need to develop the car at the same time, and you've clearly got the likes of Romain Grosjean, who can't help himself but complain about the balance of that car. (laughs) Yeah, it's... it's it is going to be the you know a more difficult season for for Haas as you say and um you know apart from these brake issues generally it's going very well for them um you know the brake you know, brake issues that's a very specific thing it's kind of almost isolated entirely down to the braking material and how they choose to run it and how the the consistency of the uh, product that they're getting from their vendors uh, is uh, and that's a big chunk of it but Haas have actually shown a lot more pace this year than, than, than I expected at various points during um, race weekends. And uh, again, we saw that they've now started on the uh, the development. There's some new parts here this weekend on the car that seemed to work and was, you know, added then to both chassis. So I think if they can get this brake issue sorted, then, you know, things are looking very, very good for Haas. They seem to be certainly a very consistent team and uh, able to sort of sort of push up there. So fingers crossed for them that, you know, finally um, they can find um, a braking material or a braking supplier that will um, suit the car. Um, but um, I was chatting to their technical director, Gunter Steiner, uh, after Friday practice. And it was he was joking that it was rather than remain um, complaining on the radio, it was it was Kevin. <laughs> and he says he thinks the two drivers maybe have just ganged up to say, well, I'm not going to complain today. Can you do it instead? <laughs> um, uh, there's always someone complaining. But um, I think that their, their issues on Friday were much more down to the, just these bizarre way that the tyres were working with the temperature on the track on the Friday that seemed to settle down as the weekend uh, progressed. But, um, yeah, all good for Haas. And, uh, you know, uh, I think it's good that we've got such a a strong midfield this year that it's very hard to work out who's going to get the results in during qualifying in the race amongst them all. Um, uh, And, you know, you've got someone that we perhaps we weren't expecting to be as competitive a team like Williams that are actually much more competitive this year than um, perhaps we were going to give them credit for over the winter. So it's making for a fascinating uh, race and uh, is a little bit worrying perhaps for Red Bull if that mm-hmm. <laughs> everyone is is developing and they're not able to that um, they may get caught this year um, and uh, you know third third position in the championship up for grabs I mean that's a big prize for a team isn't it mm-hmm. yeah I mean less than 20 points uh, for Cindy is behind Red Bull Racing now granted Red Bull only had one car get to the finish but it's all it takes sometimes but, really isn't it I mean it... but but for Cindy got two cars to the finish and mm-hmm. they have done every race this year yeah um, and you know they're already, you know, clearly ahead of Williams on um, points. So, um, yeah, it, may, it makes for a fascinating season as, as we sort of progress through the, uh, the European summer races and obviously Canada 
uh, tucked into the middle of that as well. Now, as a final point, this is the, the 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 part of the year. Certainly, last season it tends to happen because we get so many upgrades. The development, I guess, trajectory starts to solidify until teams start to explore at the end of the year in anticipation of next year. That the order really starts to settle down. We start to see the direction the narrative of the season is going to take. Interesting to see that Sauber seem to be in the midfield this race as opposed to sort of just behind it, and even to a lesser degree, McLaren uh, qualifying obviously very well, but Alonso still finishing quite highly despite running off the track on that first lap. How do you see this season evolving amongst that midfield if we exclude Mercedes and Ferrari and, and the very lonely Red Bull racing? What do you think is going to happen here? It's it, it's going to be fascinating. I uh, sort of chatting to various people from those teams through the through the uh, Barcelona weekend. And it's I think where we're at now, I think actually the, in some respects, I think the midfield could potentially start to spread out because you're seeing Force India doing a very good job uh, they've got a lot of updates to bring. We know that they're going to have some Mercedes updates coming. So Force India is suddenly looking very strong, particularly with two such great race drivers. I think Ocon is kind of proving to be the um, the rookie of the year this year. Um, Williams have mm-hmm. been fast, but we know Williams can be very slow in bringing updates to the car through the year. And, uh, you know, you've got someone like Paddy Lowe now running the technical side of that team. How quickly can he, can he have an impact? How much... Yeah, money have they got to actually start to bring lots of new bits that are going to work when they expect them to work to the team. So I'm I'm thinking Williams could actually start to slip down the order a little bit before things could improve towards the back end of the year as Paddy Lowe's influence sort of is brought to bear. But I think by then the championship could be long since decided. Um, the teams that uh, surprised me as well as Renault are doing it extraordinarily well. Um, we know that they were somewhat restricted in the development of their car over the past couple of years due to sort of budgets and building the team back up from the Lotus days. And we know they've not got a great power unit. But again, you know, we see um, some, some great results there from Hulkenberg. Um, and, um, you know, unfortunately, I, you know, Palmer has his issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not the best judge of wh- where he's at, but you know, it, it, they don't have two very consistent drivers in that team, and uh, you know, they do have a lot of competition in that area. So, you know, Renault looked good um, on performance alone, but I think as the championship comes to sort of it, its uh, end, I don't think they will necessarily have the points. Uh, which then brings teams like Toro Rosso, which which remain um, a, a complete enigma to me. They look. They look like they've got the best car on the grid. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking at it in Park Ferme yesterday, and there was a number of um, uh, people from, shall we say, a leading team that spends a, <laughs> a lot of money on silver paint, um, <laughs> were literally kneeling down, staring at elements of the Toro Rosso when they weren't really that interested in lots of the other cars in Park Ferme. So, but somehow Toro Rosso with you know, two pretty good drivers, um, I would say, and I mean, you know, maybe not the best in the field but i think they've got two very good very consistent drivers that car should be you know getting points every race should be in q3 every race but somehow something in that team doesn't operate that car its drivers and the tires and its power unit to the best of its ability and it, it baffles me that toro rosso seem to under deliver quite so much um and then obviously you know mclaren uh, i think are just on for another horrible year i mean that's quite evident already uh, and I can't see that improving rapidly. Um, partly Honda, partly McLaren, I think. Um, um, which then, you know, potentially leaves Haas in a, a situation where they could actually take quite a big step in the championship this year. Two very good drivers, uh, very consistent performance. 
uh, the fried power unit, which is certainly not a problem at all. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we could see that towards the end of the year is, you know, half stepping up the order as Williams and sort of Toro Rosso sort of drift down it and uh, Renault stay their midfield. But I think it's very much Force India are the team that have got the potential this year. Um, and uh, I've, I've said it clearly at the weekend that they've got their eyes on Red Bull. So, you know, midfield should be fascinating. Mm, it should be fascinating. It's been fascinating so far, which is something I didn't think I'd be able to say at the beginning of the year when yes. the regulations changed. That's not very Formula One, is it? You know, it's been a fascinating <laughs> year. But um, no, it, 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 it's proving to be for, for lots of reasons, not just the regulation changes. So, um, it, yeah, keep your eyes uh, on this season. I think it's it's going to be really, really lots to sort of take in at each race as, as things develop. Certainly, we all hope so. It's been a pleasure to look back on what was a really superb Spanish Grand Prix with you, Craig Scarborough. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Cheers. That was the strategy report for the 2017 Spanish Grand Prix. But if you want to read more about the strategy from this week's race, go to f1strategyreport.com for the pit stop stats, tyre data and Jack Leslie's write-up of all the action from Barcelona. The Strategy Report is powered by the 2017 edition of Apex Race Manager, the number one new racing game in Germany, Italy and Australia. You can get yourself a free copy on iOS and Android devices. My name's Michael Laminato, you can find me at Michael Laminato on Twitter, and I'll catch you in two weeks' time when we look back on the Monaco Grand Prix.